Hello and welcome to Noise Creators episode 16. Today I'm with Arun Bali. He plays in a band called Saves the Day. And he's made some rad records with, well, one that I've been really enjoying is from a band called Better Off. We talk a whole bunch about that. But as you'll hear, he does do up to a whole lot of other stuff and doing some real cool things. I think we have a really cool conversation about bands. We get a little tone geeky on this one, which is a little bit different of a vibe from this podcast. And Rude is a smart, insightful guy that I think uh, <clears throat> you can learn a lot from. Check this one out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your shade for recording your voice today? I'm going through an SM7 straight into my Apollo just using this... Uh bitchin' console app that UAD yeah. has. Official mic of punk, and uh, and then right into that, the Paul's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've changed my world. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about your background in music. I started, uh, you know, like a lot of people, playing an instrument. So I started playing guitar when I was eight years old, um, 36 now. Just growing up on classic rock stuff like old Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and... Um, you know, that kind of stuff. And was mostly just a band guy, just wanted to play in, in rock bands. Um, you know, I went to Berkeley for a year, didn't graduate like most people. <laughs> yeah, yes. I was about to say that for a year, for a year I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah, right. Just wanted to clarify. <laughs> but yeah, so I went, did that whole thing and just was kind of toiling around in bands for years and years until uh, joining Saves in late 2008, early 2009-ish. So, and then uh, I got into... Um, writing music for commercials because uh, my best friend owns a company called Black Iris Music and uh, I'd played in bands with him for years kind of off and on and uh, so he kind of got me into that whole thing which uh, you know I had to learn how to do production and like recording and, and working with virtual instruments which got me into mixing and just working with bands you know I feel like well I've always got some opinion about how songs are sounding and you know, parts and stuff. So I was like, all right, I'll put my money where my mouth is. Nice. So it's fun, it's fun to, you know, kind of del- get into that stuff without actually playing, you know, being the, like the band member. But yeah, like everybody, I started just wanting to be a rock guitar guy. Totally. So what have you learned from the commercial stuff that you've taken into the rock world or vice versa? In terms of production, just working fast. Cause you work mm. with deadlines and like, 
you know, just kind of committing, you know, committing to like, you know, I'm not going to sit around and edit this all day. It sounds good. It feels good. Like, let's just move on. Yeah. So I think that's a big one is just mm. uh, my ability to work fast and keep things moving along is the biggest. And as a composer, just the challenge of uh, writing in different styles that, you know, I would never normally, you know, I wouldn't get to do. Like, uh, recently did it some weird flamenco thing and just mm. you know, getting to research different styles to sort of, you know, if I'm not familiar with it. So that's fun. You know? Yeah, I I think researching a project could be like one of the funnest things to me. I think sometimes. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm getting uh, it, you know, especially with with a lot of modern commercials where they're licensing modern music and keeps me kind of up to date as to what's what's going on. Whether or not I like it is a a, a different question. But it's, uh, <laughs> Understood. <laughs> yeah, but I think at least uh, at least I know what's what's going on out there. So how did you move to guy producing records for other bands? I kind of just decided one day that I wanted to give it a go and try it because I'd been doing the commercial thing for a while and I was getting I'd moved to Nashville from Detroit almost four years it'll be four years this June and I you know I got my own little recording space and uh, I work I have like my own little production suite inside of a larger studio and I reached out to Dan Sanshaw at EVR at Equal Vision and just said hey I'm thinking about doing this what are your thoughts he was very supportive and, uh, you know, right off the bat had this band that he had flown to Nashville to see called Better Off. And mm -hmm. we met up at that show and it's just sort of funny, like, a, you know, a year later we're doing, not even a year later, doing that seven inch and then going and doing that record. And so. Nice. And that rec record's get, getting a lot of praise for, I, I have to say, like, they're one of my favorite young bands and I don't like a lot of young bands. You know what? I, I try to approach it like, you know, they're. Their influences are, are, you know, like a lot of the stuff that, you know, saves the day, like that era mm -hmm. of music. But they also were into the stuff that bands like ours were into, you know, so like our generation, like our, our how should I say it, like the bands that we grew up on. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, Dinosaur Jr. and mm -hmm. Jawbox and like, I don't know, all that cool 90s stuff and yep. uh, Pixies, like. So they were very open-minded. They did not want to make like a very clean record. They wanted to make a raw rock record. So I was like, sign me up, you know, because that's, that's all I want to do is just, you know, do stuff that sounds, you know, a little dirtier, a little more raw. And so I had a blast doing that one. You know, it was, it was I, you know, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't like a little nervous going into the record just because I'm like, man, this is, you know, this band's, this is the start of their career and mm -hmm. it's in my hands and I didn't take that for granted. In fact, with most producing, I, I think like I'm in a unique position where I just I just want to do stuff that I'm excited about mm -hmm. and, and that I can feel like I'm that extra member of the band because I find that I, I can't just tune out. I have to be like very involved with everything and you know, even with uh maybe how younger, you know, better off a younger band, so mm -hmm. you know, I imparted some old man wisdom on them on how to <laughs> conduct themselves out in this crazy world <laughs> hope they listened <laughs> nice nice well it sounds like whatever uh you told them on the uh record uh it did work so i'm very pleased with the response like i think i know that um you know i always tell myself like if i like it if i can go to sleep at night thinking like you know what i i think i i did exactly what i set out to do that i that that i'm fine with that you know whatever happens happens and it's out of my control mm -hmm. that said you know to see the response be as positive as it's been it's awesome you know and yeah. i am psyched for the band too and i like what they're doing i believe in, in what they're doing so you know they don't take themselves like too seriously in terms of like you know trying to fit into some they just want to do what they want to do and i i 
you know, being in saves a day, you know, you got to respect that because it's yes. like we've kind of just done whatever or the fuck we want to do. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that that has always been one of the commendable things about saves is that it's just like, you know, uh, what you guys are going to do, you're going to do and there's nothing stopping it. And thankfully, I think you usually do it well. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite things about being in the band. Just going off what we're feeling, you know, mm-hmm. if, if it feels right, then it's then let's go with it, you know? Let's not overthink it. Well, I'm pretty convinced that's the only way people make good music. Like, this is actually part of, like, the book I'm writing, is that, like, if you, you know, like, you take, like, a band like Blink-22, when you're fucking 40-something years old and you're trying to write about dog farts and you don't find dog farts funny anymore, it's going to come off as a bunch of old men trying too hard. And it's the same for every band, even if it's just a small evolution. Like you have to do what you're feeling or else that's when people are like, yeah, the feeling's not there and this album sucks. Oh, absolutely. Um, I never understand, you know, I think some bands end up getting uh, more successful than they ever expected to. So I think there's a lot of just trying to hang on to like what they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, you know, you kind of, I mean, that's how you separate like the real artists, the ones that are just like, I'm just doing this for the art. I'm doing this because I want to, put this out there. This is what I'm feeling now. This is what I want to, you know, I'm not trying to just generate this reoccurring theme, you know, it's like, cause yeah, you don't, you know, I, you know, look at how uh, even in saves like Chris lyrically, you know, you can see the, the change and how he's changed as a person. And, and for me as a listener, and I've, and I've heard this from fans too, like, you know, you can like see the, the progression from every record and, uh, you can sort of follow along to it like a timeline like oh yeah that's like my life i had this like this period and this period and you know yeah no, it totally is a very clear evolution it's something i really appreciate because as somebody who has enjoyed every single record it's like that thing of like you get to see that growth and that's a very cool thing and it's because you guys are always true to yourselves yeah it's it's always funny when uh, you know because you know every you always get a fan that's like oh you guys should make a record like can't slow down again <laughs> first of all a i wasn't there b yeah. like like we slowed down. <laughs> we proved ourselves wrong. <laughs> nice. Look, it's hard to keep up these days, you know. That's a that's a fast beat. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your your studio down in Nashville. So I work out of a studio, and it's in East Nashville. It's called Forty One Fifteen, and it's uh, it's basically like a giant house that was gutted and turned into a studio. Uh, downstairs we have sort of the a room so there's like a live tracking room and a control room and then i share the upstairs part with dave elkins from may Mm. and we each have our own little production suite we used to share one and then another room up here opened up so i took over that but we kind of bounce back and forth between the rooms depending on what's going on and so yeah but we each have our own workspace now so i mean everything minus like you know drums i'm you know i'm doing a lot of stuff in this room and it's I'm pretty happy with the results. Cool. That sounds pretty rad. But um, it's it's Nashville too, so I have like access to other places. Um, yeah, there's there's just a few studios in that city. There's a couple few that I've mm-hmm. I've uh, yeah, um, <laughs> us, you know like I like the drum sounds we get in this this place. Like it's old. It's an old house. It's like a hundred mm. years old. So the walls wow. are plaster. Which you know there are pros and cons to that, but like you know drums sound huge down you know there and like so I really you know I like doing stuff here. It's it's a vibe thing. You know nice. there's like. I always, I never really liked when I would walk into those studios that have like, you know, the, the receptionist and all the Oof. lights are super bright and it feels like there should be cubicles and like, like who wants to make a record there? That sounds terrible. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, like you, it's that thing that I think is really is like the punk thing of that. You should be able to feel like you could put your legs up, and if at some point somebody spits out a drink laughing, you shouldn't feel like you're going to be in debt for the rest of your life. Right. I uh, when I lived in Boston, I used to do a lot of uh, work at the studio called Camp Street, mm-hmm. which used to be Fort Apache. Oh, that's an amazing studio. I worked there once. Yeah. Yeah the the one in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yep. like that place for me sort of defined you know, what I wanted in a vibe in a studio that I'm going to work out of. Like I walked in there and I'm like, Oh, like I felt like aside from just like the incredible gear they had, but like just the vibe in there, like you just felt like this is a place that I can definitely create. And also you just, you know, it's, it's kind of unassuming. Like you don't Mm -hmm. expect to hear that all these amazing records were made there. You know? Yeah, I mean, the, the, they really had a great run in that studio uh, for a while because they just had such good producers go in there. Yeah, Cold, Paul Coldery, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so Adam Taylor, like all those, yeah, it's great, great spot. And I, I really miss that place. Closed down several years ago, but mm-hmm. I think Paul's working out of a place in upstate New York, the last I heard. Nice. But yeah, that sort of, that sort of was my benchmark for what I want in a mm-hmm. vibe studio. Like I just, and it's not necessarily like, a specific thing is just a feel thing. Like I just want to walk in and, and I don't even really know how to articulate it. It's just, I just know like, Oh, this feels good. Well, you know, I think that's the funny thing about like cool studios is like, you know, like people try to make them all the time, but like you could put up all the tapestries you want and some studios don't have the right vibe. And then some studios, it's just like, it is almost an accidental thing that the vibe just works really, really well in the room. Yeah, definitely. So tell us about something that makes this studio unique. Well, I think we, we kind of sell it on the fact that it's like, we call it home-style recordings because, mm. you know, it's basically a giant house. And nice. so we want people to feel like they're at home here. You know, and I think location, where it is in East Nashville, is it's pretty pretty great. It's just super close to all the, the cool spots that you want to go to here. But I think, uh, you know, just the people that are working out of here, I mean, that's... I mean, that's always what makes a studio unique, like, you know, because yeah. you can have all the great, you can have all this great gear, and if you don't have, like, the right people working on, work, working with it, you yeah. know. It is all in the person, so. Sure. So, do you just play guitar, or do you play any other instruments? I'm primarily a guitar player. Uh, when I started getting into commercial stuff, I, I started familiarizing myself more with, like, piano, and I have played drums in bands. I kind of fake my way through it. Nice. Um, <laughs> Uh, but my new thing, I'm learning pedal steel right now. And that's oh, wow. Been, yeah, that's been a bitch. But I'm too deep. I'm too far into it now. I can't turn back. I would say that pedal steel is the instrument that looks the easiest, that is the hardest. It's so hard because mm. you think about, like, you know, you know, as a dr- uh, drummers use, every, you know, every limb sort of independently. Mm-hmm. With pedal steel, you're doing that, but you're adding, like, knees. So you have, like, you know, you have your left foot doing the pedals, uh, your right foot's doing the volume pedal, your knees are moving levers, uh, your left hand's doing the slide, and your right's picking. It's just, you know, and then you're trying to make these, like, all these things sort of work together. So, like, if you're doing, like, a slide up or something, like, the way, like, you might lift a pedal, but then mm-hmm. move a lever, and then it all has to happen, like, in this the same motion. Yeah, to get that kind of envelope where it swoops up in the pitch properly yeah and like you know I, my first couple of cracks at it or lessons i was like what the fuck am i doing like this is mm. insane like what <laughs> have i done like I, nice I just, bought, I just bought this thing and i was like ah, or oh, whatever i'll just I'll, I'll figure it out 
but I've I've had some breakthroughs with it. So now I'm kind of like, all right, I've like feel like re-energized with it, and I have a really great teacher here. So I'm psyched to go deeper into it. It's a really fascinating instrument, and I'm I'm I'll probably learn the cool sneaky Pete and Lloyd Green licks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I live in Nashville, so. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say if there's any city city to learn this in, it's the, you're in it. Yeah, uh, but I also like I want to have like a cool pedal board for it. I want to do like cool ethereal stuff and just be weird with it. So, nice. So I'll be psyched to start putting these on some uh, on records. Nice. I, I think that, that that's pretty rad. Um, it's a fun instrument and like it's so widely appreciated mm-hmm. when it when it sounds good. Yeah, I mean the first time I saw somebody really be able to play it, I, it blew my mind. Like what you can do with it. Yeah, it's a beautiful instrument. So we've been like kind of using this uh, scale of like, so you got like your Steve Albini's that like they pretty much just make it sound good, but they're not going to really talk to you about takes or song song structure. And then you get like the John Feldman who's going to rewrite your song totally for you. Where do you see yourself on that scale? So is like is it like a one to ten kind of thing? Yeah, like what's called <laughs> ten John Feldman and zero Steve Albini. I I guess it depends. It mm. depends on the band. I feel like it depends on the song too. Like I usually just kind of let that tell me to happen. I kind of try not to live like with, you know, I don't have like rules really. I mean, I have like guidelines, but yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess I'm pretty hands-on. I guess I would, I probably I'm more on the Feldman side though. I think mm. sonically I'm more on the Steve Albini side. Gotcha. Uh, in terms of, Maybe that's what threw me off about the question. But yeah, yeah sonically, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I need to start asking that to two of people. <laughs> yeah, might be a good point. Because sonically, I'm definitely more like a Steve Albini guy. Like big room drum sounds, just raw, dirty, you know, like sick rock records. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like the producing side of it, probably closer to like the Feldman stuff. Nice. I think I, I think uh, I tend to just want to be. I like being hands on. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of you know. If somebody wants to work with me, they want to work with me because of my ears or my taste or ear and or my taste, you know? So, like, why not lend that? Yeah, no, totally. So, that makes sense. Yeah. So, what do you find that you bring to records most often? Uh, kind of like what I was saying before. I think it's just like like a vibe, you know, my taste and ears. I bring whatever I can to help make the song what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. Whatever I have to offer to do that i i do that <laughs> nice well i like what you said you're saying here about like what the song wants to be because i think that's important too is is like a lot of people impose their thing on the song whereas the song yeah like i know, feel you know you you see a lot of people that try to just crow you know and you'll see that like you know i'm a guitar player i i fully understand the the urge to want to crowbar that cool lick in there mm-hmm. uh, i get that <laughs> trust me yeah. But when you can sit back and be more objective about it, you know, like, it's like, do you, does it really need that? And mm-hmm. I grew up on, like, cool prog rock and, like, you know, I like musicality. But I feel like if you do too much of one thing, it just loses its luster, you know? It's like if you just keep playing in, like, odd meters, it doesn't really feel, you know... I think if you do too much of something, like, it's, uh, it just gets old, yes. you know? So it's... I just try to figure out how to like peel it back and like how to make it like so when that thing does happen that it's like that much cooler nice so what's a common mistake you see bands do before they get to the studio i think just being like if they're unprepared or just like sort of expecting to show up and not have to put in work because it's like 
I am hired to be like a producer, but I'm not, it's like, I'm not going to do all the work for you. You know, I'm here to help like a band see their vision, hopefully it becomes like our vision. So it becomes like an, a mutual thing. So I sort of like expect that, that much work in return, you know, because uh, at the end I of the like day, that. it's their record. Yes, <laughs> so, that's, it's true. Know? It's true. And there's much, only so much a producer can produce. I wouldn't show up like t- to do a saves record and just be like, hey, why don't you play that guitar part? Yeah. I mean, maybe I would just for, you know, just to try something different, but like, not out of like, you know, well, well shit, no, I'm going to play that, you know? Mm-hmm. Nice. What's something smart you see bands do during the recording process? You know, I think like, especially with younger bands, how to utilize the whole social media aspect of being in a band. Mm. There's a lot of bands that are, are pretty good at like capturing that footage or capturing those like happy accidents and, you know, cool studio moments. I always think documenting a record is a good thing. So mm-hmm. most of the time. It's a good thing. So, but yeah. I don't know. I guess <laughs> during during like, the really tense moments, it could be good to hit stop sometimes. Yeah, maybe. Uh, or maybe not. I don't know. Mm. Have you seen uh, that, the Metallica documentary? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. As, as, as I like to call it, it's like two hours of watching the worst day at work of all time. It's like a breathtaking train wreck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I, I went to that with four producers, and we all felt like we're like, oh, our day off, let's relax. And we all felt like we had worked for a week after that. I mean, you know, look, I had Master of Puppets on tape. Mm-hmm. In, I was six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. I grew up on all that early stuff. And, uh, like, it was watching that as an adult and just, like, thinking about, like, oh, my God, like, I worshipped this band, mm-hmm. you know? Like, what ha- like what a bunch of babies. Mm-hmm. But I don't <laughs> know. Like, I, you know, I guess it's hard for me to, like, you know, because I'm, I, I'm, you know, I, I don't have that kind of coin. So it's like, I don't know what that does to people. It obviously does something to people. And I think they've had it for so long. They've been the, one of the biggest bands in the world for so long that I wonder if you just become so detached from reality. Yeah. And I dread that. I would hate to be that, like, that's so far removed from the real world. I don't know. That's just my perception of it when I watch it. I'm like, who are these? Are just a. It's like a bunch of grown men that are like acting like teenage millionaires. Like, yes, I don't know. I don't know how else oh, to put it. I the, I just read a really interesting book called uh, I'm now going to mess it up. But I'm sure, but it's called like the Geography of Creativity or Geography of Innovation. It talks about every scene that's ever had like a flourishing moment, whether it was like Athens to Florence, Italy, art scene on up to Silicon Valley, and it talks about how the big downfall always is arrogance and believing your own hype. That that is the one thing they all have in common is that how a creative hub happens and like a great burst of creativity in any great artist is always different story. But the way they fall is always the same story. And it's this comfort and a lack of naivete that you get into. And they totally exhibit that in that documentary. I think you have to find ways to make things more difficult. I mm. think you have to put, take yourself out of like that comfort zone because when you become a band like that, your whole life is a comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a bunch of yes men around you. Like, yep. what what do you do to put yourself back in that? And granted, like, I wouldn't say like go and write Master of Puppets again because mm-hmm. they're not. It's not going to happen. You it's know, not, never going to happen. No, it's about as likely as us writing Can't Slow Down again. Yeah, I think you have to just find ways though to like at least you know the spirit of that and that sort of like creative burst that you're talking about. And uh, I respect that about a lot of musicians that I know here in Nashville that you know that are incredibly successful but still find ways to like 
make themselves creative and take themselves out of that mm-hmm. sort of comfort zone. And I think Jack White's great at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's like what he'll do to just make things to put himself in a, to limit himself. Yes. You know, he's the probably arguably the most prolific artist in discussing the limitations he puts on himself these days that actually gets good results. Sure. And I also, you know, kind of going back to the question you were asking about um, commercial music, that was another mm. thing I learned was how to work within limitations. Because a lot of times I am working in a very confined thing. Like, mm. you know, write like this, but don't do this part. And like, you know, you're just like, yeah, so you're writing for like, yeah, you're writing and you're limited mm. in what you can do. And uh, I don't know, I find that a lot of good creative moments come out of that when you just... You're taken out of your comfort zone. Forced to do something a little different, yeah. And that's easier That's easier said than done. And I don't really know what that is. And, you know, it's probably different for different people. So getting back to you as a producer, what happens when you and a band disagree about something? Uh, it depends on the disagreement. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but usual case scenario. I usually have to default to a, the songwriter. Mm-hmm. But if it's something that I feel really strongly about, I'll... I'll find a way to convince somebody. Mm-hmm. But I've also been in that thing where I've been convinced where I'm like, okay, like, you know, so I think it's just about communicating it. Uh, like what, you know, you think this, I think this, why do we think this? Is there a compromise without sacrificing like, you know, the integrity of the song? I usually just try to keep, you know, I just keep those lines of communication open and try to get to somewhere. Cause in a lot of ways, you know, making records, there are compromises, you know, especially when you're in a band, when you have like four people that are like, everyone's going to have their opinions. And a lot of times it's about figuring out, well, is your opinion self-serving or do you really mm-hmm. believe that this is better for the song? You mm-hmm. know, so. That's a great point that I don't think has gotten discussed uh, on this podcast that much of like, you know, the self-serving opinion and how that gets kind of disqualified a lot of the time. And I, I think that that's a very under-discussed thing of that, like, you know, it's no shock that the drummer always thinks the drums should be louder on a record. It's not always a bad thing, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, why, you know, it's like, you gotta get, you get back to like, why do we make music? Well, it's like, you know, I make music for myself. So it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I want to hear something a certain way. You know, I think there's just things that you, you just learn to compromise and, uh, Hopefully. I mean, I have as being on both sides of it, you know, there's things where I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's not how I envisioned it, but it's not, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sleep fine. It's all about if I can sleep at night. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you know, I, I do know that one well of be, be, being up at night going, I still can't believe we're taking that harmony out of that part. Yeah. You know, and like, you know, there's been things on Sage records and stuff where we've, we've all kind of been like, you know, we all are producers in a way so Mm -hmm. it's like you know we we all have very strong opinions about it and i think in that scenario it's like all right well we sort of we have to respect the sort of the legacy of the band and like Mm -hmm. who's going to know that better than than chris so Mm -hmm. so a lot of times i i you know as a producer i'll default to the songwriter um Mm -hmm. if it's a co-write thing then it's like you know then it's just about communicating Mm -hmm. you know it's like what's your like what's the intention here Like, what do you, what's bothering you? Like, and again, like, yeah, making sure it's not self-serving to the detriment of the song. Cause you know, if you're going to just record music to just listen by yourself at home, that's one thing. But Mm. you know, if you're going to put out this record and try to like have this career and do this, there's a little bit of playing that game that, you know, that you kind of have to do. So that might mean your guitar part has to come down a little bit. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So 
sorry. Nope. But and that's me being a guitar player saying that. So mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it took me a long time to kind of get to that. Yes. Because I grew up on like guitar music. So Yeah, if if you listen to classic rock, there's so, there's a lot of records where you can definitely indulge the loud you know, you listen to raw power, you can hear the loudest guitar solo you ever want to hear. Oh man. <laughs> I want to go listen to raw power. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> um so give me your opinion about some of the modern production things that I know that all the kids want your opinions on. Do amp simulators have a role in your production? In commercials, but mm-hmm. unless I'm going for a very specific effect, mm-hmm. I won't use like that on a record. I did buy a Kemper. Oh, yeah? And I will say that the Kemper has, I think, changed the game for me in terms of like, you know, non-real amp recording. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of a tone snob. Mm-hmm. I've been playing guitar a long time. I know what I want to hear, and I know how certain things feel. And I play, I play a lot of like cleaner type amps. Like you know, in saves, I use a super reverb and a matchless. And you know, you're, you're, I, you're, you're going right into the follow up question. This is great. All right, yeah. So, th- th- so your three favorite amps. Oh well, I'll get, I'll get to that. Uh, okay. <laughs> but like, so my thing with amp sims has always been. Like it never feels it always gets like seventy five percent there, but it mm-hmm. never like it never has that thwack of like just a ripping super reverb or something or you know mm-hmm. like an old Vox or even like you know like sixties Marshalls like the, any of those like clones or circuits mm-hmm. or whatever you know simu- like amp sims never got close enough for me to even consider actually tracking with it on a record mm-hmm. until I bought a Kemper so and for me that gets like. I'll say 90 to 95% there. Mm-hmm. And in the context of a mix, I don't think you'll notice. But I do think that there's something... I don't see myself using the Kemper for everything because it's always the same sound. Mm-hmm. So if I'm using a profile, you know, there isn't that, like, that sort of accident of like where the mic was placed and mm-hmm. like, you know... And I'm very like old school about stuff like that where, you know, it's like listening to vinyl. It's like you put the needle down and you like look at the jacket to like experience something i think as as making records and engineering and recording is should be an experience like that Mm -hmm. so i still so i i kind of go back and forth with like you know i don't i don't shun technology i do embrace it but i also there's also other things that are just tried and true that you can't deny i think with Mm -hmm. mixing like i mix entirely in the box Mm -hmm. you know i've you know i like tracking through hardware Mm -hmm. but mixing in the box you know, I'm totally cool with that yeah. I think now, especially nowadays. And one of my favorite mix engineers is Chad Blake. And oh yeah, you know, listen to our all in the box. You know, and he has been for years. And um, so that's what I aspire to be. You know, it's like you yeah. Know. I, I think that we finally are in the era of technology. Like, um, I, I often have talks with my friend uh, Finn McKenty, who runs the audio channel at Creative Live, about the thing that, like, you know, what so many discussions miss is that, like. We are years away. Like, it's not like, no, it's never going to hit. Like, you know, we are now in the present day. Like, I've had the time where I've had eight engineers who are really good engineers in the studio listening between an AB of tape and the Slate Virtual Tape Machine. And no one can consistently say, like, you know, they end up guessing. Yeah, they they can't consistently choose the right one. I've done that with Amp Sims. uh Uh-huh. I every time could get it right. Yeah, and that's uh, the thing. But like three, five years from now, I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. But for now, I think it is still the case. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. I think uh, 
I think it's just making it easier for people to kind of get into recording too. You know, you don't have to have like a rack of, of all this outboard gear. Mm -hmm. I think that's what's going to separate uh, certain recordings for sure. I think mm -hmm. there still is something to be said about, you know, tracking through hardware and using nice mics and like a good treated room and, mm -hmm. and also the user, you know, yep. it's like yep. the engineer, it's like, you know, that's the most important part of this. Mm -hmm. You know, because like, you can get some guy right out of school and put him in a room with a Fairchild. He might not have any idea what to <laughs> fucking do with it. He, he's know? probably not going to have an idea. Of, I can remember the first time I messed with a Fairchild, and I sure as I know I do what I was doing with it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, they sound good, though, when you figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I guess I kind of, you know, I embrace technology, but I'm also a purist about certain things. And I, and I, I'm about like the experience too. Like mm -hmm. I think making a record and you know you're plugging in all this stuff. I think it's just part of the experience. Like mm -hmm. that's how you romanticize it. I think that that factors into creativity. Yes, you know? I agree. It's like you're just a bunch of computer windows open. Like that's just like ah, oh, all right, that's fine if you're at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, we 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 almost got to your three favorite amps. Give me those. My favorite amp that I own is a sixty a 1965 Twin Reverb mm -hmm. Fender Twin Reverb. I toured with that for years. I use it on everything that I record. Um, it's it's a studio amp now. It doesn't go on the road. I think the Super Reverb mm -hmm. might be my favorite amp ever made. I think yeah. uh, just it takes pedals so great. And I the way that I use like in I use like amps as like a platform for pedals. So mm -hmm. the Super works perfect. Just that circuit. There's something about it that just especially with the way I play guitar. I think it just it you know it reacts to sort of the percussive nature with of how I tend to play. Mm -hmm. so the super probably my favorite i would say some of that like mid mid to late 60s marshall stuff like you know the mm -hmm. jtm 45 yeah. from like the mid 60s or like the um the 10,000 series marshalls like the mm -hmm. super bass the stuff right before like van halen one and i love that tone too that's a great yeah. sound too the 12 the 12,000 series uh, marshalls were great too but yeah like from like 67 to 68 69 plexis i love those Lately, I've been digging Supros. Um, oh yeah, that that so that that's in my top three. Yeah, Supros are are so cool. Um, Definitely a little diverse at times, but like you know, when you find the right Supro, I mean, it's also like that's all these classic records. Like that's Page, that's Hendrix at times. It's like sure. it's all these people, and it's like and it's funny because no one plays them, and you never see them anywhere. I think one of my favorite recording amps is a Basement, a mm. 65, 65, 66 Basement Blackface. I, I, I have one here and I, I do love it. That what year is it? Uh I actually don't I know it's blackface, but I don't know the year because I'm terrible at things like that. Well most of that that whole era of blackface mm -hmm. basements were just incredible. On the last days record I used primarily a sixty six basement mm. and a metropolis. Oh this guy? yeah. Are you familiar? Okay. Yeah, those so other guys from uh, Valencia I wanna say had that when we recorded them and they it was fucking sounded amazing. Really? Those guys bought a Metropolis? Man. I, I want to say that's what the band it was, but I also have a terrible memory after all these years of doing this. Well, there's sick amps, and like, so we made our rec last two, Saves made our last two records in Fenton, Michigan, and mm. so George Metropolis has shops in Flint, and so oh, wow. you know, I, I know him, and like, our engineers know him, so like, he loaned me a, his, um, it's a 40, it's called a 45-100, so it's a hundred, it's like a it's like the super amplifier. It was the one that it was like based off like the 65. It's like the Hendrix at Monterey. Amp. Wow. That's and, fucking uh, rad. So that's what he, he loaned me that. And so that's what I used that in the basement and then a bad cat mm -hmm. and 
a box and a bad cat. The bad cat we have is a black cat, so it's just like a mm-hmm. souped up box. And Vox is another one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to, for me personally, I lean more towards um, class AB amps. Mm-hmm. There's just something about that circuit. Yeah, I think. the type of transformer it is or whatever. Yeah, I think like uh, certain pedals, like I'm a big fuzz pedal guy and especially mm-hmm. like old germanium fuzzes and like that mm-hmm. weird sort of transistor fuzz stuff. So like I just think that through a class AB amp, there's just it just sounds better to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I love using Vox and class A amps on like rhythm stuff and on, you know, definitely recording. Live, I'm, I'm all class AB, but nice. I'm just, I used to use Fender amps live, basically. Mm. That's kind of been my thing for a long time now. Nice. So let's get back to your takes on some modern production things. Uh, how about sampled drums? I wouldn't make a record with mini drums, I don't think, unless it was like deliberately sort of weird or electronic sounding. I mean, I use samples and mixes sometimes just to layer in. And I do MIDI drums for every commercial that I do because, you know, who's got time to mic a drum set for that, you know, yes. so I can program it in, you know, 10, 15 minutes. I think, again, it go- kind of goes back to just like the, the organic sort of old school thing. Like I prefer somebody to play it. Mm-hmm. Whether or not I layer in a sample later just sonically is a different thing. But I think on most records, I would prefer to have somebody playing the drums. Mm-hmm. So how about uh, pitch correction? I'm not opposed to that. I think in moderation, I think if you're just like, a terrible singer and you're trying to like you you know the, the saying of you can't polish a turd is mm-hmm. very true in, in record making so you know so i'm i'm not opposed to it i don't think it's any different than like i think it just got it's just easier now to like fix problems yes you know people would fix problems have always found a way to fix it but like now it's just easier so uh, agree i'm not i'm not opposed to it i would i think with like with i tend to go through and just sort of pick the ones like I'll, if I hear something that's out of tune, mm-hmm. I'll react physically to it. So if I'm mm. reacting to it, then I'll be like, okay, that note needs to change. Mm. But sometimes there's, you know, if it's like a little push-pull or whatever, I, I kind of just, you know, I just kind of go off of how it feels. But, you know, I think with mostly the sort of aesthetic that I have with wanting to do more raw-sounding records, and that can hurt more than, than help sometimes. Agreed. I think it just, it really, again, it just depends on the song and the the. the the production but i'm not opposed to it i don't mm-hmm. like at this point i'm not really opposed to anything i just mm. you know i just want it to be cool <laughs> so, <laughs> i like you know? that i like that oh. i just want it to feel cool and be you know i don't want to be goobery about it you know <laughs> nice. so i bet i get you know whatever i mean there's nothing wrong with a little melodyne here and there nice. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> um, i agree i mean i edit guitars you know everybody edits drums and like mm-hmm. I think to that to that end, like you know, if you have like a drummer that's got really really good feel, mm-hmm. and they're kind of you know, you kind of move a couple of those things to the grid, it makes it pop. Like mm-hmm. there's something about it that's just like, oh, now it's just so in there. Yep. But if you're a guy that's like all over the place, like you know, your kick drum sounds like a pair of sneakers in the dryer. <laughs> then it's like no edit, no amount of editing is going to make that feel cool. It's and true. It's just you know. So it's the same with with pitch correction. Like you know, you gotta sing it well because mm-hmm. you can tell. I mean, it's it's pretty obvious. Like you know, when you hear a singer and you're like, whoa, like that was auto tune. Like that, whoa, like whatever those like mm. big interval jumps that singers will do sometimes, uh, the, scooping the pitch. Yeah, just like whoa, that was you know. There's no way that the person saying it that that dead on. Yeah. <laughs> so is, so yeah, I'm not opposed. Thing? I'm not opposed, but I just in moderation for you. In moderation. How about uh, mastering your own records? Uh, I guess it depends on the budget. Mm. I know I don't ever do it myself, but I'll I'll do it like I'll have somebody in house do it or the engineer that I'm hiring. 
mm. I can't do it. So, but I, you know, I prefer to have different ears on things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a point where you you get too close to it, and it's nice to have an objective view. So, ideally, I would like to have somebody master it. And I also like the idea of like you know you're tracking through hardware. Most people are mixing in the box, at least I am, mm-hmm. and then having it go to a mastering guy that might run it through like you know a Verimu or just something that's mm-hmm. like that last sort of bit of tube transistor gooiness. So. Mm-hmm. That sounds a lot cooler to me than just slapping an L2 on it and cranking it, you know, like. Yes. So. So tell me about how long you like to work on a song. How long does it usually take for you in a usual case scenario to flesh out a song and track it and then mix it? I mean, if we just worked on one song, Mm -hmm. like it would probably be conservatively, I'd need to say two days, but I mean, Mm -hmm. I can do it in a day. It just depends on, on how things are coming together. But, you know, you know, you think about how you know, everyone makes records. It's like you do all the drums first or Mm -hmm. whatever. It's like guitars, bass. And so it's hard to think of it that way. Just by a song. Mm -hmm. Because you kind of are jumping from song to song, Mm -hmm. you know? So, but I guess if I was just like having a band do one song, I'd say three days. Mm -hmm. Okay. If I wanted to really, you know, nail it. (laughs) Nice. So I'd like to say a day, but I don't know. That seems unreasonable. Yeah, I, I'll say this: we've we've done a lot of these episodes, and no one's saying a day. So okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Those happy accidents that happen—that sort of thing, where it just like that moment of like pure inspiration. Where and not every record is going to have that, but you know that guitar part, or like you know there was things on like the last Sage record that was like just something sonically that inspired a part and it was just like oh wow like this just got a lot cooler like Mm -hmm. i'm trying to think if there was stuff like that on the better off record i think there was a lot of like sort of things like that where it's you know you kind of get the meat and potatoes down and then you just start throwing a bunch of other shit at the wall to see what sticks and like you know sometimes the things that end up sticking you're like wow i did not expect that to be as cool as it was or like what a dimension it'll add i think i just enjoy the overall like just seeing it come to life but in terms of like an actual specific thing, I don't know if I can think of one. Hmm. Uh, well, that's a, a, a good answer if nothing comes to your mind. Tell me what are the worst mo- moments you've had and what you learned from it in the studio. I think it kind of goes back to that disagreeing part where mm. it's like, or, you know, what you know, like when there are just days where I, I always say, you know, you kind of can, there's just sometimes things are out of your control. There's some, mm. sometimes there are those days where like nothing sounds good. Mm. Nothing sounds in tune nothing Mm -hmm. the tones suck you're just kind of going deeper and deeper down this like hole of depression and despair trying to like find this thing and sometimes you the thing that i learned is like you know what just walk away from it and come back to it when it's happening Mm. you know that's hard to do because you're paying for time to be there and stuff and you know but there's a point where it's like all right you either gotta just settle or we'll come back to it when it's when it's happening yeah, it's it's true. There, there, there's just sometimes circumstances like you know something just gets off in the room, and then the, yeah, it's, you know? it's not it's not right on some some records. Especially when you're doing like a long full length. There's just like that one day where it's like it's just not right. Yeah, the weather changed. All the guitars went out of tune, and it's like or you know or whatever. It's just it's just there's just days where it's not happening, and those are usually you know those are pretty disappointing because you know you come in, you want to work, you want to create something, and it's just like oh everything sucks. Mm. <laughs> so just learning to sort of kind of just take a deep breath and know that, you know, just keep believing in what you're doing and know that shitty days are going to happen. You just kind of 
Yeah, got to power through. You got to power through, yeah, exactly. So let's get into a little bit of, like, your uh, tasted music. Uh, What's a perfect record somebody else has made, and what about it makes it perfect? Perfect records. I had this conversation recently, and I was talking about the Cardigans, uh, Long Gone Before Daylight. Mm. So try to think which one so, so that's not the love me love me one that's the one before it that's two records after that that's two records after wow that's so funny i loved the one after the love me love me and i don't think i uh, ever heard that record gran turismo you're talking yeah, about yeah i yeah. loved that record that record is awesome mm-hmm. uh, i gotta check this out this is gonna be fun i'm gonna have a good ride home tonight yeah it's it's incredible um it was just, I think, just the production, the songwriting. Um, you know, they kind of went for this sort of Fleetwood Mac thing, which I think they nailed. And mm. uh, just the, the progression of songwriting, I think, just cul- you know culminated to this record. And it was just, I don't know, I just think it's perfect. I mean, it's a Desert Island record for me. Mm. Tell me about five records in your musical growth and what they did for you in your growth as a mu- in music. I mean, I have all the early Van Halen records were the reason mm-hmm. I got into music. My first record was 1984 when I was like five years old because um, I have an older brother. And so he got me in all this cool vinyl back in the day, like Shout at the Devil was the other nice. first I got. You know, it was like right around the same time as 1984. Let's see. But growing up, I think, um, you know, Hendrix, like getting into like Axis Bold as Love, Physical Graffiti by Zeppelin. When I heard that, I was like, God damn, this is awesome. Like, and that was after, like, already being a fan from, like, hearing Zeppelin 4, going through all my brother's records and stuff. Phys- getting physical graffiti was a big one. You know, Beatles, of course. I think when I got into high school, getting into bands like Quicksand and getting mm-hmm. into, like, the whole hardcore and post-hardcore scene, because that gave me something, you know, it was like every other awkward teenage high school kid just mm-hmm. looking for some sort of, like, sense of meaning and community, and punk rock gave that to me. You know, I came out of like sort of, you know, the classic, the classic rock or prog rock stuff. Like I loved King Crimson and mm. Yes, Growing Up and stuff like that. And so I was just into weird stuff. And and then I got into punk rock, and it didn't always resonate with me musically. But I think there was a lyrical thing, and there was just sort of a communal thing about it that was like really inspiring. And especially getting into high school, you know, I got into you know being. I wasn't drinking and doing, you know, doing drugs. And like all the kids that were doing that were just kind of these like dopey jock kids that I just was like, oh, I don't really want to hang out with any of you guys because mm. you're just, you know. So I just kind of did my own thing and then I, you know, found punk kids and I was like, what's this? Mm. You know, what's a fanzine? <laughs> yes. So remember those? And uh, that, that, that a lot of kids who are listening to this are still saying that right now because we're old. You know, what's funny is that like the first the first hardcore band I was ever introduced to was 108. Oh, and, really? Uh, That's yeah, funny. So, you know, and just full circle, you know, being close with Equal Vision and, and mm-hmm. my relationship with them. It's just, it's funny that, you know, I that's a significant moment of my musical upbringing, you know, getting into like those equal vision records or those old revelation records. Yeah. Same, same, same for, same for me. Actually, funny enough, a lot moment who recorded, I think guess it was the last one Oh eight record. He was the partner in my studio. Wait, who? A lot moment. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, he was the original partner in what we had, but yeah, he did all like the Judas factor stuff after that too. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So that's, just that era, I think, like, you know, but Quicksand was a band that I heard where I was like, oh, this embodies the spirit, but musically, I feel like I am floored. Like, I was just like, this is so cool. So hearing, like, Slip and Manic Compression, like, that, mm-hmm. that opened up a whole new world for me, musically. Yeah, um, it's crazy records. 
Oh, so good. Mm-hmm. And then after that, like getting into like Elliot Smith, I think was a big one, at least in mm-hmm. getting me into like thinking of songwriting and like thinking of uh, just pop arrangements, um, mm-hmm. but also doing it in a way that was musically interesting. Cause that was always what I was like. I liked the idea of doing like hooky pop stuff, but I want, I was a high school, I don't know, I wanted to be like a cool proggy guitar mm-hmm. guy. I was in a lot of math rock stuff and that sort of, changed a lot of things where i was like oh got me into folk music i started listening to like nick drake and mm-hmm. stuff like just big star and uh rediscovering the beatles as a result of of listening to the la smith cover it and just sonically kind of being you know largely influenced by them so Elliot smith was a was a mass so, so, so which Elliot smith records in particular xo was the one that was just like you know i, I the first one i heard was either or yeah, that, that's my, that's actually my favorite one, and I never like minimalist stuff. It's great. I think um, I didn't have the appreciation for how the minimalist part of it. I think I wanted to hear like the sort of big production, and so then I heard XO, and I was like, "Oh, this feels this is awesome. This is so cool and weird, and you know, strings and weird guitar, piano stuff. Like it's incredible. Uh, a- a- ambitious without ever getting in the way of a song. Exactly. Like it had it all. Like it had like you know, cool you know, progressions that not your average guitar player is going to be able to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you never felt like you were being like, it never distracted from his lyrics or just the songs and the melodies and stuff. He just was so clever, incredibly clever as a songwriter. So he's, uh, he's very missed. Um, yeah. After that, you know, I kind of got into like, you know, stuff like super, dr- oh, like Britpop, like, you mm. know, getting into Blur. That's what, one of my favorites too, yeah. Yeah, Great Escape. Like, mm. I had an ex-girlfriend that was, you know, she played me all these Blur records and I was like, this guitar player is nuts. Like, And, and it takes a while for you to notice how insanely good he is. Totally. Like, I had just bought, like, at the time, this was like ni- late 90s, I had just bought a Telecaster Mostly because I'm a, you know, I wanted to be Prince. I love Prince too. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. I could do a whole podcast on my affection for Prince. We, we should do that because he's one of my favorites too. Oh, anytime. Yeah. But yeah, hearing what he was doing with that, like what Graham Coxon was doing, and that got me into like Oasis and like mm-hmm. Stone Roses and My Bloody Valentine. So it went from like Britpop to Shoegaze and all that stuff. I think, you know, I was very like, you know, I can, you know, as like a lot of kids, like I was closed minded about what I listened to. I was very particular up until the point I got into punk rock and that sort of opened me up to things that were maybe not always like musically, technically difficult. And uh, it just, it just, I would just kind of started going off things that felt cool, which has been sort of my thing ever since where it's like, Oh, that just feels good. That's just like a cool riff. That's, you know, I mean, not every Zeppelin, I mean, Zeppelin riffs are just like blues riffs. Mm-hmm. They stole from other people. So totally. So I think just learning to appreciate simplicity and so, uh, learning that less is more. Mm hmm. In terms of recent records, though, well, that that, that is that is that is my next question is okay. what, what, well, what, I've probably gone over more than five. Yes. So, so, so what what is uh, what is your favorite record of recent times, and what inspires you about it? Let's see. I think that last Queens of the Stone Age, like mm. Clockwork, um, mm. again, perfect songs, weird production, cool mix. Yes, uh, I love the mix. I don't know. I just uh, I really like that record a lot. The way it flows too. Uh, I think it's the sequence is really cool and it's mm. which is bizarre considering how long they spent making that like it was kind of done in these like weird segments because uh yeah it just took a while to do because of various things going on in their lives mm. so 
but you know you listen to it and it feels like it was done in a month yeah it's it's a really well done record that arctic monkeys record the one that he produced the the chad blake oh okay yeah yeah. am i think that's what it's called Mm -hmm. yep listen to that a ton tame impala very interesting recordings yeah yeah super cool you know and i like i like what you know dead weather's doing because it's like just cool like raw rock stuff i know like they record that stuff to like eight tracks, mm-hmm. which is so cool. Like, you know, who does that? <laughs> uh, really only them at this point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess if you can afford to have a tape machine and, and kind of keep it working. Well, yeah, guys, afford to have guess, also the perfect equipment to do it with and the perfect console to bounce the tracks to and all that fun stuff. Yeah, but, you know, again, I think there's also just like, again, I think just having the ears for what to do with that stuff, too. I mean, that's... There's something to be said about that because, you know, if you have a modern production guy trying to use all that gear, it's still going to sound sort of modern, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I, 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 th- I, th- I think you're totally right. It's like, you know, it, it, it takes that gesture to make that work. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of what other modern records, though, that I've, uh, I've been digging. Oh, Alabama Shakes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like the vocal production on that one a lot. There's kind of a trend here with the last few that I've named. It's just mm-hmm. sort of groovy rock stuff that's just like, you know, sonically cool, but the, but the songs are cool. Cool. Can you tell us what you've been working on lately and anything you have coming up that's cool? Lately, I've been doing a lot of commercial stuff, but, nice. uh, you know, I'm, you know, I just, I kind of just took a slow, I just sort of eased into this year with production stuff. And um, so, yeah, uh, I'll say some potential save stuff. There's a couple of bands I've been talking to about coming to Nashville and making some records. So I don't know. It just it still feels early in the year, and I'm just kind of, you know, letting things happen in their their natural progression. I guess you know the commercial thing keeps me busy enough, so I can you know sort of like I was saying, be a little choosier and sort of just feel the things that I'm like. You know, I never want to like go into a producing situation not being fully psyched and like you know I just want I want to feel like that that extra member i want to feel like i want to be so into it that they just trust me Mm. you know to help see that vision and because i think it's cool like i you know i had such a good experience making that better off record um and i was so happy with the result that you know and that was a little bit of lightning in a bottle the way that all sort of happened from the moment i mentioned to dan at evr about like hey i'm thinking of getting into production to him saying well this band that we're about to watch might be a cool choice if i sign them Mm. And then it's like just the sort of the way it all happened sort of naturally and organic. I try to keep that sort of philosophy and just let things happen organically. Try not to force anything. Well, it seemed to have worked with you on that one. So I think that's, that's a good move. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can be also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.